Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show. Today, we are focusing on building sustainable romantic relationships. My first guests are Dr. Harville Hendricks and Dr. Helen LaKelly. Alrighty then, let's get to it. And I have the greatest honor of having Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt in the house today to talk about their book that I read many moons ago. And I'm so glad that it is being publicized and brought to life again. And that is getting the love you want, how to experience more dissatisfying relationships and build a lasting source of comfort and intimacy with your partner. Good morning, Helen and Harville. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. Good morning, Lisa. We're happy to be here. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Well, let's talk, give, give our listeners a little bit of history because your work has been around for decades, I'm proud to say. You are, are the co-creators of Imago Relationship Therapy, which is a unique healing process for couples, prospective couples, and parents. Talk about Imago, your years together as, as a couple and business partners. Well, that'll be fun. Our uh, years together actually began in 1977 when we both met at a party that neither one of us wanted to go to but we're sort of encouraged to go there by our friends. And we left uh, with, I don't quite know what the thing was, but we left knowing we were going to talk again and meet again. And we did. And we began a conversation about relationships because we were both divorced, wondering why and how could good people like us have a divorce and stuff like that. And that led to the research on why do couples fight that led to the book Getting the Love You Want, which was published first in 1988. And we began this conversation. We've been pillow partner talk. We've been a manuscript creator, book writers and workshop leaders. It couldn't have happened without Helen. It's purely a co-creation of all these years of bringing this stuff together. And Helen wants to say something. Yeah, my version that I would add is just that, um, that, that, that at this party, I was a single parent. I was divorced <laughs> and really sad. And someone told me Harville Hendricks was in the other room and that he taught psychology and religion at the seminary, which I knew at the university here in Dallas. Oh, and they said he's divorced now. And you might want to meet him. So I, I did, made a beeline and introduced myself and tried to get him to ask me out. And he did. And then on dates, when he told me what he'd like to do with his life, I proposed. Boom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, she told me not to propose to her. That, well, but that uh, she was going to do the proposal if we ever had one. <laughs> well, I said that to every guy I dated. So I waited five oh, okay. years. Oh, and that's, yeah, that's you know, TMI. But anyway, or maybe, I mean, it's fun for us, but don't want to want to be sensitive to your audience. But yeah, I just, I was so in awe of his vision and I've been so thrilled to be his partner. Oh, that warms my heart because you look at couples who have been together for several decades and you ask them about that spark, about that connection and what it is that keeps the pilot light ignited. And yeah. there it yeah. is. <laughs> Yes. Well, no, that's not it. <laughs> oh, tell us more. <laughs> no, that was the lighting of the pilot light, but that didn't mean the flame didn't get extinguished. So yeah. basically, while I was excited about dating him and also so excited about the book, we fought all the time. And so we fought, fought, fought. And I just, you know, we both wondered, ooh, what would it be like to be married? We fight all the time. And so long story short, 
I did propose, the book got written, and it was so exciting, but we kept fighting. Uh, and so we really went through the valley of the shadow, like a lot of couples, even talking to divorce lawyers. And the good news is we're I had the marriage of my dreams. We are the poster child for the dream can come back. The pilot light, the flame can be reignited. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we had, I would say, 20 years of struggle that almost led to a divorce. And then uh, we began to apply. And that was during the time the book had been written. It had been on the bestseller list. Oprah had published it. And we were well known in the world. But we were really not practicing what we had written about and did with couples, which is kind of a lesson in itself. You know, you can know it, but not if you don't do it, you don't really know it. So we began to practice and there are a bunch of things we could say about that. But ultimately, the practice led to a, a reconciliation, to a recommitment, to a new marriage. Well, it's 2000, the New Year's Eve, 1999. Uh, we had a, a recommitment party. So we began the uh, 2000 with a, with a new marriage. And we've been going uh, really well ever since uh, because we stay in the practice of the process. Well, and Harville keeps growing the theory. He's the theoretician and it's brilliant. And we added new things to the theory. And that's why there's a new addition. And in addition to him deepening and expanding the theory, <coughs> what he does is also simplify it. So he can say very simply, and I can say very simply, what it takes to keep the flame flaming and warming and uh, lighting the relationship and lighting the world. Enlighten us. Because we all want love. And some of us have zero skill set in knowing how to create it and keep it. Well, I think that there are about three important things to say about uh, keeping love alive, to use sort of well-worn phrase. And one of them is that you have to learn how to talk. I think this was the primary discovery in the clinic, working with couples is that the way they talk to each other made it impossible for them to solve their problems. So somewhere way back now, we don't quite know, but a couple of decades ago, we created a structured conversation called Dialogue, which had three steps. And the steps walked people uh, into their topic, uh, but with uh, highly structured guidance from the therapist and the couples talk to each other. And what we discovered is that when we had that structure, which was a mirroring, talking and mirroring, talking and validating, talking and expressing empathy process, people, we finally figured out from the research that what that did was help couples feel safe. Very simple thing. They felt safe. It regulated their amygdala and their prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex began to work uh, more than the amygdala did. So mm. that fear, fear, some thinking and intention could take over instead of being driven by fear and therefore anger or anxiety. So when you got uh, became safe, then we've discovered that couples could actually connect. And because when they were safe, they dropped their defenses. They weren't into being polarizing, being uh, argumentative or competing or trying to be in control. They became vulnerable and engaging with each other. We call that the connecting process where you feel like you're with a friend. And when you're connecting, then you become partners in the project of making your marriage the marriage you want. But until that, you're opponents and therefore your opponents and you don't get the marriage you want. You get your nightmare, which is... <laughs> What Helen and I had for a long time until we finally were able to uh, to create safety. And I just want to underline to anybody who's listening, if your relationship isn't safe, it will never be intimate. You may have sex, you may do all kinds of things and play and go on vacations, but you'll never be intimate because your brain won't let you truly be vulnerable to each other. So the first thing is to learn how to talk, and that's to learn the dialogue process. And that's the first thing that we teach couples. We're not, I've said, began to say over 20 years ago, it doesn't matter to me what you talk about. What matters is how you talk about it. In fact, I think, Helen, you're responsible for that actual sentence. And then uh, you may want to pick up on the, the zero negativity and the affirmation process and, and, uh, and fill that in as the second 
thing to keep love alive is you have to. Um, so I, I think to first say that we have a definition of relationship, most people think it's two people interacting, and we talk about it as two people and the space between them. And people go, what? Why are you saying the space between? It's empty. It's invisible. There's nothing there. But actually, there's an energy field in the space between two people. So things like the look in each other's mm-hmm. eyes or the tone of voice a couple uses when they communicate to each other, speaking in a succinct way rather than flooding their partner with words. There are ways to talk that can create safety in the energy field between the couple. And there are minor things they can do that create anxiety. And when there's anxiety, connecting is ruptured. Mm. But when there's safety, connecting reconnects. And can't happen unless you're safe. (laughs) And it's really, uh, there's a long story we won't go into, but Harville is the one that really was interested in his and my practicing having zero negativity in the space between, seeing if we could communicate without making each other feel anxious. And we got a calendar and charted it every night to see if we could succeed at having one day with one of us, well, with both of us feeling safe with each other throughout that day. And it was really hard. It was sort of like a research on our own selves that, boy, we kept blowing it with each other. (laughs) And we, you know, not only have have read all the relationship books out there, we've written a couple and we couldn't do it. We just couldn't do it. We couldn't go to bed saying, today I felt safe in your presence. Wow. Yeah. From the the experts, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That was a big wow to us. We had no, like for my, for my end, Lisa, like I wasn't ever being negative I was just trying to improve Harville. I I have little things that if he did a little bit better, (laughs) would make his life work. I had no idea that my great advice landed negatively on him. Oh, my goodness. I now ask Harville questions. I wonder about Harville. I let other people try to improve him. If there is any improving needed, I stop trying to improve Harville. And I have a better relationship. And Harville learned some things. And But anyway, a couple can experience a lot of wonder if they practice zero ne- negativity together. So I got better after you stopped trying to improve me. Much better. <laughs> Poor Harville. Can- Counterintuitive, right? You know, we want, we want to, to, to fix and bend and need someone into some, something better when, when we step away, they, they do it just fine on their own if given the opportunity. Well, the way we language that is that uh, negativity or criticism of any kind, it basically annihilates your partner because it says you are not the person that you could be or should be or that I want you to be. You have to be somebody else. And everybody, even if they don't consciously feel that annihilation, I mean, even if they don't think that that's annihilating to me, they experience annihilation. And so consequently, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to come back with a roar and say, you you know, you can't get rid of me and I'm not going to do all that. Or they go away and don't protest, but they're gone. Either way, the relationship is ruptured. So we now have a pretty strict thing that if you want the relationship of your dreams, you must go zero negativity. And there's a process, even a pledge that people sign, and we help them understand what it is and how to do it on a on a daily basis. Then the third thing that makes keeps love alive is sort of like a garden. You have to water it, and we call it the affirmation process. And that is that instead of putting your partner down, you put your partner up. And you say that, uh, hey, that was really good. Thank you for bringing me that cup of coffee. I love the warm look in your eye. You are such an amazing person. Uh, Wow. Um, You know, you do all kinds of affirming the being of the other as okay as it is. And when the other is affirmed and not negated and talked to in such a way that you can connect, You then uh, free the neurochemistry of the brain 
to uh, produce uh, endorphins and dopamine so that you have a support in your body for what's happening in your behavior, which is influencing what's going on emotionally. So we say that's the formula. Learn how to talk so your partner will listen and to listen so your partner will talk is zero negativity and affirmation. And you will build the relationship of your dreams because it'll be safe. You'll experience connecting and joyful aliveness. Let's jump off to that break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt. We're talking about the new edition of Getting the Love You Want, how to experience more satisfying relationships and build a lasting source of comfort and intimacy with your partner. To learn more, please visit HarvilleAndHelen.com. On Twitter, you can connect with them at Harville Helen and at Harville Hendricks. On Facebook, that page is Harville and Helen. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about building sustainable romantic relationships. My guests today are Dr. Harville Hendricks and Dr. Helen LaKelly. Let's rejoin the conversation. So Helen and Harville, let's go back to something that you shared in the previous segment about your years in struggle as a couple. And I thank you for being willing to be vulnerable you know, that B word, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute, about the struggle and where it led you. Well, it was hard for me to become more public in a Monco and not be vulnerable because I just, and I, I give Harville so much credit for uh, agreeing that it's an important thing to share. So the story basically is that I was so impressed with Harville's vision and his intellectual capacity to pull it off, to write a book about that illuminates why do couples fight? Why does the dream become a nightmare? Which is what he said to me on that date that caused me to eventually propose and marry him because I was in awe that someone wanted to write a book like that. And I had a master's in counseling psych and went halfway through through a PhD in clinical psych, and I was very, very interested in psychology. Harville is the visionary and the theory builder and clinician, but the book got written, and I was helping a lot behind the scenes when suddenly the Oprah studio called. He went on the show. I really wanted just his name on the cover. She took it to the Emmy committee, and that show won Oprah her first Emmy. So she had him on 16 times. So the book is really famous. Well, I'm doing cartwheels in my heart. I'm so thrilled. I'm so excited. All the lives this is going to touch, all these families, all these parents, and all these marriages can be saved. But our own parenting styles were very different and problems crept in and got bigger and bigger in our home. We had a blended family. And the discrepancy of how people imagined we related and what it was really like was so great. So I asked Harville if we could go to therapist till we could find a good one. After the fifth one, we kept firing them because we (laughs) we were smarter than them. And the fifth one fired us and called us the couple from hell. And it was really, really tragic that we went to divorce lawyers and announced that to our families and to the Imago community. And that's when a couple things happened. And eventually we thought, you know, we think we can keep this together. And we do have the relationship of our dreams now. But just just want to say that you you have to learn to be able to talk about the tension or the differences that are there. And Imago therapy does teach you how to do that, that in retrospect, we're glad, believe it or not, I'm sort of glad that this all happened because so many couples are moved by our V, our vulnerability. (laughs) They tell us that because you all struggled, it makes us know that our excuse that Harville and Helen 
are compatible, so it works with them, but it doesn't work in my relationship. They can't say that. It really was hard for us to do it, too. But anyone who does this process can have the marriage of their dreams. They can have the transformation. I just want to add something about the Imago therapeutic process and the practitioners that you have worldwide, that the book, Getting the Love You Want, has been translated into more than 50 languages. And there are more than 2,000 therapists worldwide trained in the Imago process. So this is not, this is not a fly-by-night operation. Yeah, right. <laughs> I haven't heard it said like that before. <laughs> <laughs> right, but, right. But that's certain. That's certainly true. Yeah, we have I, I a think, family yeah. of amagotherapists in fifty-three countries yeah. all around the world. Yeah, 50, 53 practicing in fifty-three countries, and we have uh, also thirty people on our faculty who are training therapists all over the world to do imago couples therapy. So. Uh, and that's been going on now for about 25 years. And I'd like if I could add and embellish something you said, Helen, about our stuff and to, to go to the theory. I think that what finally got clear to us and we've been struggling with a bunch of our colleagues write books on how to fight fear and fighting fear and how to have a good fight and all that sort of stuff. And I think we've had a problem with that because we have figured out how basically you don't have to fight. You will always have tension, and the tension is because you're always going to be different because there's no other way we can be except different. But the tension can be a kind of, what is the phrase we use? Conflict There's growth trying to happen. The tension can, you don't have to be in conflict about the tension. The tension can be conducive to collaboration and requiring collaboration. And it may not always feel good. Uh, so that it's not like cotton candy, but it doesn't have to be polarizing and rupturing the relationship. The tension, in fact, produces growth if you hold the tension without going into disconnection. So I think Helen and I pretty much got difference down. I mean, we can have a difference and it can be pretty intense, but it never turns into a fight. Certainly nothing like the old days when fighting was about all we did because because difference was um, so objectionable. Uh, for such a long time. It's uh, important to know that the tension is not going to go away because of the fact of difference. But conflict doesn't have to exist because if you hold the difference, you grow into new parts of yourself and you grow a new part of your relationship and you become more creative on the outcomes of any problems you're dealing with. I want to tap into something you said about safety. Because when we feel unsafe, much of the time that feeling is coming from something that is not real and present, but a feeling that is arising because it makes us feel like something in the past. I guess where I'm going is, you know, that if we're unwilling to look at our families of origin and childhood trauma, it's pretty hard to have this holistic, safe, connected relationship that you speak of. Yeah, exactly. The safety actually comes from, from two, and the fear that requires us to work towards safety uh, comes, we think, from two sources. And one is the natural, the natural fact that human beings uh, are different, that the world presents itself uniquely to every human being, but every human being believes that the world that they are experiencing is the world that is. <clears throat> that is the real world. That's the true world. And so that the the conflict is about my world, your world, like one of mine and Helen's uh, tensions is how what will the temperature in this room be? (laughs) (laughs) And and will it be at 70, about 71, which is good for me, or will it be about 74, which is good for Helen? So is the room cold or hot? Well, it depends on who's shivering and who's sweating. Because perspective and experience are always different. And that's a sort of prosaic way, and everybody can identify with that. But if you put that and magnify that to the whole human situation, everybody everywhere experiences the other person's reality as different from mine and therefore a threat to mine. That is, which reality is the one that's going to rule the roost? Right. And I'll just mention all I needed was to put on extra clothes. You know? <laughs> Back to it's not 
necessarily what we're discussing, it's how we're discussing it and making sure we're discussing things from the upper brain where you can collaborate and make win-wins. I now love my three layers of flannel. And and your your electroglanger. Yeah, Yeah. great. I'm acing it. But anyway. So um, the tension produced creative outcomes (laughs) so that I'm – I can sleep under one sheet and she sleeps under well electric blanket, but in the same bed. So yeah. it, it, that's just, a, again, a prosaic thing. But the second source of the problematic is that that inability, we think, the inability to really see and accept difference as okay comes from our childhood background in which when we uh, when we were little and in our parents' arms, we were being shaped by the sensitivity, the attunement that they had to our needs. And we were recording them as they were interacting with us and creating in the in our amygdala an emotional memory of our reaction, interaction with our parents. Uh, later on, uh, that's that's uh, from the beginning of life in the in the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. Then later on in the hippocampus, we begin to record the events, actual events. But that's at about age three or four that we can record events. Prior to that, you can only record emotions. So, but these emotions and these recordings have two subjects. One is, what are they doing that makes me feel safe and alive? And what are they doing or not doing that makes me feel scared as if I'm not going to survive? So the baby's basically calibrating that all the time and making a picture of it. And here's the fact what makes this interesting is that template, that movie, we run, all of us run in adulthood when we're looking for our intimate life partner. And the movie, we're looking at the world through the movie through the template, through the filter, for somebody who is similar to the caretakers who did not meet our needs. And when we see that person, our unconscious mind, we have two layers of perception. Our unconscious perception will see this person is similar to the caretakers, triggers memories, not in our conscious awareness, but we just, in our conscious awareness, we're just excited. And we move across a crowded room towards this amazing person. But underneath that, there's a an expectation being set up. This person is like mommy and daddy. From them, I can get my needs met. So when that happens, you fall in love. And then you move toward establishing a connection and a relationship with that person and your unconscious mind so that you can get the needs met from a person in adulthood that were not met in childhood. But this person is similar in adulthood to the person in childhood who did not meet your needs. We're attracted to it. We select it unconsciously. We do not, we wouldn't, if we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't do it. So this is, I think, (laughs) ever who made up the world, made up human beings, knew that the person we need to be with is not somebody we would choose if we knew who they were. Uh, You would not, you would not pick a person like your cold father and your uh, invasive mother, but that's the only kind of person you really are attracted to at the unconscious level because those are the people who frustrated you in childhood, and you have to get what you didn't get from a person similar to the one from whom you didn't get it, but from whom it should have come. That seems to be the way the brain sets it up. So obviously, you're going to go into conflict about that because that person that you've fallen in love with is going to respond to you like your caretakers did. They're going to meet the need. And you're going to respond to them like their caretakers did. You're not going to meet their needs. So you're going to go into a real serious impasse. And this is where it's really important that couples know that the big problem in their relationship, the big impasse, is not a function of their own adult will. It's the collision at the unconscious level of two competing need systems, both of which are seeking to be satisfied in a relationship in which neither one has the capacity to do it. So they have to know what it is and then grow that capacity so that the problem your partner has with you is an opportunity for you to grow a part of yourself that you would never grow without that partner's needs. But turns out that's a part that got shut down in childhood by your parents. So you were unwhole and your partner wants the part of you, like, like let's say, We all grew up with two arms, but your parents in childhood shut down one of them. 
but you'll marry somebody who wants both arms. And then they will say, I want the other arm. And you say, well, I only have one arm. And they say, well, I think you can do it. I think you can hug me. I think you you can do whatever. And if you stay with it, instead of saying no way in hell, I don't do windows. If you stay with it and say, I will learn to be that. I'll learn to do that. You'll discover you're activating an undeveloped part of yourself, which is your full potential that got shut down in childhood. So your partner's needs calls you into your own wholeness. So this is what makes the tension between opposites growth producing for both persons if they will stay in the process and use a relational technology to make it happen. You can't just do it, just keep trying, slugging away. You really have to know how to do it. And the relational sciences are now well enough developed that we now know how to help couples move out of that impasse into a a conscious partnership with some speed. And to learn how to do it, I think people need to get the book, Getting the Love You Want, How to Experience More Satisfying Relationships and Build a Lasting Source of Comfort and Intimacy with Your Partner. I highly recommend the book. I have read it years ago, and I'm rereading it now, and I've had the great pleasure of hosting Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt in the house. Will you come back and do more with me? Because there's so much more we can explore together. Would love to. It would be an honor. Absolutely. I feel the same way. Give us a call. All right. We're going to have another virtual cup of tea. Here comes the break. (laughs) Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. the show. If you're just joining us now, we are continuing the conversation about building sustainable romantic relationships. My next guest is Dr. Gary Salyer. He is the author of Safe to Love Again, How to Release the Pain of Past Relationships and Create the Love You Deserve. Dr. Gary is a relationship expert, mentor, and speaker. For more than a decade, he has been helping people rewrite the rules of love In their brains, using the science of intimate relationships, Gary guides singles and couples to claim a lasting soulmate relationship. And who doesn't want that? Gary, thanks for joining us on the show. And I'm happy to be here, Lisa. I am super happy that you're here. Let's talk about the inspiration for writing this book, because you grew up in circumstances that sound like they were challenging. Oh, yeah, they were challenging. Uh, I grew up in a family that for seven generations, nobody graduated high school, a lot of alcoholism. And my mother had borderline personality disorder. Most people were divorced and miserable. And I can still remember at seven saying, I don't want to be like this. So when I went to college, I enrolled in a psychology degree and religion, thinking surely this will give me all the answers. Double major. In my senior year, a professor says, come on in here in the psych department. We want to give you a test. And the test results came back. And at the very end, he just says, oh, by the way, you have a 90% chance of being divorced. And I was like floored. So I literally suspended graduating that year and went and did a fifth year of college focusing on marriage and family relations. And I said, boy, I'm not going to have that happen to me. So 12 years later, I'm getting a divorce. I'm going, what happened? I don't understand. I did all the study. I do another seven years of therapy and a bunch of workshops, and, the, and I get married again, pronounce myself all fit and ready. And four years <laughs> later, there I am again. And this time, I'm looking at life. And then after a series of painful relationships where I began to realize I had become Mr. Wrong, there wasn't just them, that mm-hmm. was, I said, therapy's done me some good. Done me a lot of good, but it never changed my core style of relating. It had me managing pain versus creating a different experience in love. And I said, if they can't crack it, then I will. And I dedicated myself to cracking the code to what rewires our brains. So we 
think and feel just like those good people that have lasting, wonderful relationships that you see holding hands after 20 years in a restaurant where they're gazing in each other's eyes, waiting for the food to be served. I love this story because not only are you coming from an academic perspective, but you're also you're your own, you know, where you're testing these principles on yourself and you have gotten it right. I'm, I'm happy to report. I have been my own guinea pig. That is absolutely true. And it was good because When I would read stuff, especially in the research, I really began to have a feel, okay, this is going to work. No, not, not really. And I began to trust my guts. And then I began to see what really worked with clients. And over 10 years, I got a pretty good idea that uh, this new theory I've been talking about, that there's four feelings that tell your brain you're loving. If you can give and take them, all four of them, you're pretty good to go. And if you're not wired to give and take them, things always go straight. Let's talk about our love style as humans and where does it come from? Well, usually early childhood. That doesn't mean that later experience, like maybe a traumatic event later on in high school or perhaps a really bad relationship that we accidentally got fooled into, but it's usually the first three to seven years. And what I argue in the book is that in those first few years, by the time a a child is one year old, we know from attachment theory that you can tell by the way they are separated from a parent and how they return to the reunion with them, you can tell whether they are wired in a secure way, which means they don't get too amped up, and they eventually grow up to pick really good partners, and they create lasting relationships. They're called secure. There's two other types of babies. One years old now. And these babies are either anxious, they're waiting for when love does go away, and they grew up to be drama kings and queens, or they're the avoidance, and they have a flight response. They're afraid of depending on love or being dependent upon. And they grow up to be Mr. or Ms. No Commitment, or uh, the unavailable mate. So what tells that baby at one to be secure was what I focused on. Because at that time, there's no beliefs, there's no stories, There's not even much conscious memory. All that's running is feeling. And what tells that baby tells you because your brain is wired from early on to look for, have I been welcomed with joy? Have I been made worthy and nourished to reach out for my needs? Do I feel cherished and protected? And do I feel empowered with choice? If you're feeling welcomed and worthy and cherished and empowered in a relationship, I'll bet you're feeling pretty good about it. If one is missing, you're thinking, yeah, there's a few things to work on. Two, you're saying, what's the number for my therapist, best friend, right? And, you know, and three or four, you're in a toxic relationship. So the point is to focus on what really tells your brain you're loved versus other things that get in our way. You talk about six rights or permissions in the book, Safe to Love Again. Share them with us. Right. You can think of them as permission slips to have certain experiences or not. When a baby is first welcomed into the world when they're first born, oh, there you are, little Lisa. Ooh, so glad to have you. <laughs> that gives you the feeling of welcome with joy. And when you feel welcome with joy, you have a pretty good right to exist, as I call it, to be in your body, to be connected. If the second right is, you know, it usually comes along as we feed our baby. So when the baby is allowed to reach out, to signal it has a need, and the, there's an attuned response back. So you reach out for your needs, and you feel worthy to have your needs met. So that second feeling worthy gives you a right to reach out for your needs. The third right is what I call right to separate and belong. This is when the toddler starts crawling and goes, oh, my God, that's mom over there, and I'm over here. I'm separate. I get to be a me. So it's all about I get to be a me within an empowering, supportive, cherishing we. It's not just a me or just a we so I feel invaded. It's a a balanced Goldilocks zone. I get to be a me inside a we. And as adults, that means we get to have some support, you know, a safety net under the higher wire act of the aspirations of our lives and our dreams. Then there's two rights that come in around two, and that's a right to create your own experience and a right to assert. This comes from the feeling of empowered with choice. A right to create your own experience is I don't have to let someone else be the standard and I'm good with all of me, good and bad, weak and strong. Right to assert is just that. I can have a voice. I can have choice. I can choose what I want. And someone will acknowledge that. And if you have all of those rights, 
those five rights, they give you four feelings of welcomed, worthy, cherished, and empowered, then you have a full right to love and be loved, not one or the other. So these six rights, right to exist, right to have your needs met, right to separate and belong, create your own experience, right to assert and right to love and be loved, give you these four feelings. And that's the heart and soul of what tells how brains that are secure are wired. And if any of those are missing, then you go anxious or avoidant. So the trick is, how do I give myself back a feeling of worthy and nourished if I don't have a, and a right to reach out if that's missing or a right to feel empowered if I don't have a right to create my experience? This gives you the formula so you know your way back. And what's interesting is many of us are challenged in this area. We have perfectly decent parents who take care of us and nurture us to the best of their ability. However, when it comes to this deeper material, there are challenges. There are. And, you know, sometimes you can have well, well well-meaning parents. In the book, I talk about Carolyn. Carolyn was born to a world-class family. Everybody's secure. Three older brothers that are all, uh, and sisters that are all securely wired. But when her mother, who's a world-class mother, was about six weeks old, I think it was, she was in a wicked car accident, was in traction in a hospital for 10 months with everything broken. And so she could not adequately respond to her child. The family did as good as possible with makeshift aunts and everybody, but it wasn't the same doting, responsive. And she kept asking, why? Why am I so anxious? Nobody else is. It's because during the crucial period, she didn't get all the momentary attunements that everybody else did. And so it was resetting some of that word basically for her, right, to have her needs met. And so you can get it naturally. Everybody does. At some point in time, your brain takes the best deal. Not everybody gets a missing set of rights from bad parents. Occasionally, stuff happens. Yeah. I love what you said, that the, take, the brain takes the best deal. That's right. Right? Like, so, okay, this will do. This is okay. This seems to be right or feel good enough. Well, for instance, I grew up with a borderline mother who had some violent tendencies. I had a lot of right to separate and not as much right to belong. I didn't, I wasn't very good at creating a we. And that really played into two of my, those two divorces. Now, when you're with a borderline mother who can get very physically violent, do you want to belong? No. You know, me and being separate is the best deal available. That's safety, right? Yeah. And it was in giving my brain a right to belong, to making it safe to belong again, right? That was the winning ticket for me. Some part was always pulling me out of relationships because at one time, that was the best deal available. So no matter what your pattern is out there, if you're listening to this, No part of you is wrong. Some part just took the best deal available. We like that part. It's been working for 20, 30, 40, 50 years to keep you sane and on the planet. It's done a good job. We just want to give it a different security memo. And when we talk about a borderline mother or a borderline parent, describe for the listeners what some of those features are. (laughs) One word, duck. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, some of those features are you feel like you walk on eggs. You never know when she's going to ignite or he is usually. And there's the, the punishment never fits the crime. And you really have to watch for how volatile they are. You're always going to be made wrong. I remember in high school, she gave me two uh, ties for Christmas. And when I went out that night wearing one, she goes, you're just too hard to, to please. She goes, you didn't wear the other one. I go, <laughs> I go, Mom, do you know any men that wear two ties at the same time? <laughs> but you just, there was no way to win. And there's this volatility. They're scared to death they don't belong. And there's a, there's often violence or extreme manipulative, cognitive, emotional behavior. And verbally explosive, if not physically explosive, right? It can be either or both. It can be either or both. My mom had the, the physical down because I think she went through a lot of abuse herself and oh. she wanted to make sure she was in the power position. But you will often feel powerless. The big feeling is, are you walking on eggshells? Yeah, there's not security in one's own home. The sense that the home is is the safe harbor. 
Yeah, there's no, yeah, attachment theory loves saying us, do we have a safe haven? That's, and that comes with a beautiful right to separate and belong. But if you're with anybody with a personality disorder, I guarantee you separate is a better deal than belonging. Yeah, yeah, I do. I hear you. I hear what you're putting down. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Gary D. Salier to learn more about his work and the book, Safe to Love Again, How to Release the Pain of Past Relationships and Create the Love You Deserve. Please visit www.garysalier.com. On Twitter, he's at Gary D. Salier. And on Facebook, that page is Dr. Gary D. Salier. Instagram, it's the same deal. And here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious. And happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Talking about building more sustainable romantic relationships with my guest today, Dr. Gary Salyer. Let's return to the conversation. So Gary, in the previous segment, you were talking about your history, what brought you to write this book, the education, the trial by fire in your marriages to learn how to create and maintain a lasting soulful relationship. In your book, you talk a lot about neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain as a way to heal and learn how to be in relationship as an adult. Yes, the big thing is hopelessness. One of the things I discovered while writing the book, I had about 40 or 50 people, clients, friends who were reading it, and the feedback I kept getting was, oh my God, that thing made me feel hopeless. Uh, Can you give me a little more hope? Hopelessness, and I think not deserving, not feeling worthy, are pretty much at epidemic proportions in this culture of ours. So a lot of attachment books have been good at saying, hey, you're anxious, you're secure, you're avoiding. Great. That in five bucks just might get you something at Starbucks, you know, but a label is not the same as saying, how do I give myself back a loving relationship? We want love, not a label. And so this book is saying, how do we restore these feelings? The, The secure baby feels welcomed, worthy, cherished, and empowered. And I spend six chapters talking about how clients and, you know, and the work that we did together found their way back to feeling worthy, to feeling welcomed in the world, to feeling cherished if that was what was missing. The key point, and it's not just thinking it, you've got to do the really deep work that's not the stuff in the prefrontal cortex. It's not the stuff that says, hi, I'm Lisa, I'm Gary, I'm the, or whoever you are out there. It's the deep stuff in the limbic system and what's called implicit memory. Implicit memory is just a part of our memory that you can't recall, but you'll never forget. And it's resetting those feelings so you feel worthy. When people feel worthy, they pick better partners, they create better relationships and lasting. So it's the deep work. That's not about the story you're telling. It's the, it's the feeling that tells your brain what story to create. And there is a way, it, you know, I didn't discuss all the ways I do it with clients. It does take deep one-on-one work with someone that knows how to reset those feelings. But if you can reset those feelings, your brain will begin to stop picking the same Mr. or Ms. wrong. So the key is to get yourself feeling these. And when they become your GPS for love, everything changes. So, for example, chapter eight, the commitment of that chapter is I will train my brain to feel more loved and loving by and give an example or a series of examples of how one would do that. 
Okay, one of the things I do I, to start the transformational work, I give people a series of what I call perceptual filters. If you stop and think about it, when people don't feel worthy or they don't feel loving, some part of their brain stops deleting the people and experiences that would love or make them feel worthy because it doesn't agree with their identity. Or another tricky one is they're so afraid of being disappointed again, they just start deleting any evidence they could be loved and then they say they're hopeless. It's a tricky little way. I'll delete any possibility of love so that I don't get involved and I don't get hurt again. And then people feel really hopeless. So what I do is I give them like ways I can notice that I can be loved and well connected. Ways I can notice it's okay to reach out for my needs. And when people, and then they just read this little filter. This is just a begin, the, ba- the first baby step, but it does miracles sometimes. Like, for instance, when women get pregnant, I've been told they begin to notice every pregnant woman on the planet when they wonder where were those. They were always <laughs> there, right? If you go out to buy a, a Mercedes Benz, suddenly you notice every Mercedes Benz on the planet. So the moment we start letting in new evidence, then we can allow in new feelings. And that's the first step, undeleting the things that were being deleted, so to speak. And then the second step is to work with a qualified professional who understands these rights and knows how to reset them at a very deep level. It's hard doing it by oneself. And I think that's a very interesting point about the outsourcing support and also the use of surrogates, right? That we play out this dynamic so we can trust and verify in smaller situations. Exactly. I mean, one of the things, I mean, the three things, if anybody else, is that you're deserving uh, way more than you think you are. Hope is available, change is possible, and we do need a community. We need to be in a we. I mean, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to restore love style. You, we need all the the good things. I mean, people that give really great memes on Facebook or podcasts that talk about it, you know, finding a trusted therapist or coach who can work with your friends, secure friends, not the jaded ones. Look out and notice that there is a we available in the universe, but you've been so focusing on me and I've got to do it that we often forget, wait a minute, every day we are surrounded by a we. Yeah, it's healing, right? You have successful we's, these little test scenarios. It makes Mm -hmm. one feel more confident to go out in the world and say, yes, that I, I am worthy of love, connection and belonging, as Brene Brown puts it. Then you seek to surround yourself with more relationships that offer that, that sense of connection and a glow, that inner glow. Yeah. Yes. I'm a part of something that is bigger than myself. I guarantee you that if it feels like you're all alone in the world, no one's going to be ever be there for you ever, ever again. That some part of you at one time being a we was so painful. Some part just deletes it. So you never go there again. And that's a tragedy. Yeah, it is. That's how real hopelessness and hopelessness, if you stop to think about it in this way, is they're trying to protect you, but it's not doing a real good job of it. Your brain's trying to do something helpful for you. It just got the wrong security code. Now we just got to get it safe with belonging or we or what or reaching out or having a voice, whatever was taken off. And it will always take the better deal if we can just give it the flavor of safety that your brain is looking for. And that's the key. And I think surrounding ourselves with healthy models. So say family of origin, relationships weren't good, models not good, there are attachment challenges that we create a family of choice as we heal that will deliver that sense of connection or tribe in a healthy fashion. We do need models. I had a great third grade teacher. I was teacher's pet and I had a younger sister. And my sister tended to take way more after my mother. I was always saying, I want to go in the opposite direction. So my third grade teacher told me in sixth grade then when she got my sister, she goes, she thought she was getting Gary again. But she found out like early on, one day there was going to be a guest and Mrs. Graham told my sister, I want you to be to the greeter day. And she goes, well, what do I do? She goes, well, when there's a knock on the door, I want you to get up open the door and say, welcome in. Now, you got to remember, she, my sister was taking that way after my mother. So my sister, the knock comes, my sister gets up, she walks out, opens the door, says, well, come in. 
<laughs> not, not exactly inviting. <laughs> not exactly. And but that's role modeling. That's role modeling. Yeah. That would have been welcome in my family. That would have been a good day. <laughs> right? And what we want and the things that we know is that's why if we can hang out with secure people, people who have loving relationships and notice what they're doing, we're way better off ahead of the game than having a, if you're a man or woman out there and you've got a best friend who's really jaded and they're always saying, oh, dump them next. That is not secure advice. You want to hang out with people who that you can notice, wow, look how they responded to that. Look what they did there. Wasn't that sweet? You want to notice all those things because that's how your brain got wired at first and it's going to be how it's going to be wired now. Your brain notices everything. And the more you're surrounded by, you know, happy people who, you know, that's really how you harvest happiness is by noticing all the good things that that are out there in the trees that are really giving good love to people, so to speak. Well, and if we look at emotions as positive or negative contagions, if we're surrounded by people who are negative and present these negative role models, we're more apt to replicate the model. However, if we see that it's in our interest and there's a positive benefit to following that healthy model, we're going to gravitate towards that. Exactly. And But a lot of times we hang out with these other people because we don't have a right to a better experience. If you've never felt the feeling of empowered, you'll find people who will disempower you because that's the only feeling you have the right for. Yeah, that's the key. But I want to mention something that I find very interesting that you lead workshops, several different kinds of workshops for singles, for couples, for uh, safe to love again workshops. And you said that when singles come to the workshops, they're trying to figure it out, right? They might not have that good role model. And the idea that we can take these kinds of programmings and learn how to have a positive role model, to learn how to rewire the brain, sometimes that may be all that we need. It can be. With a little skill set and just and seeing it model can go a long way. I remember one of my extraordinary couples I had a woman who had been through about a 26-year divorce. She was pretty jaded. She goes, I'd love to find a good man, but uh, I don't know if I've got the skills even. So she came, and I can still remember – you know, uh, her, she looked at me when she left. She goes, for the first time in my life, I know what lasting love looks like. Because <sighs> that's the power of just spending three days in an environment where these four feelings are given very much so and the skill set. The point of all this is everybody deserves a love that lasts. And that's my mission in the world. And it's a good one, I think. It is the secret sauce that makes us soar, right, as, as humans. Absolutely. You know, uh, lasting is what everybody on the planet wants. And yet nothing stays the same, right? We have to wrangle with the impermanence of life and all things and the evolution of relationships and and the ability to have some dominion over our own sense of self. Yes. Lasting doesn't mean unchanging. I learned that in way back as an undergraduate. I remember the professor brought in a couple that were 93 years. They had been married 63 years. He was 93. She was 88. And a, a football player said, what's it like being married to the same woman for 63 years? And this guy looked him straight in the eye and said, son, if you think you're married to the same woman for 63 years, you've got it all wrong. I've been married to five women. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, she, and he explained the five women he's been and how different they were. And she's just nodding. Lasting is not boring. It's not, you know, monotony. Lasting is dynamic. Lasting is you've got to be able to adapt and change. You've got to grow with each other. So, you know, let's be very clear. Lasting is about being able to realize, oh, that way of meeting her needs or his needs from five years ago may not work today. That's what attunement is. Yes. So lasting is very much dynamic. And it's about keeping in touch with who is my beloved today. Not last week, not, you know, but today. How do I attune? Well, what do we need today? We, you and me, together, and our guests today wish everybody good love and the discernment to know the difference. To learn more, please visit www.garysalier.com. On Twitter, you can connect with Gary at Gary D. Salyer, and on Facebook, Dr. Gary D. Salyer. And on Instagram, it's the same deal, Dr. 
Gary, Salyer, and there's a period between each of those words. <laughs> Gary, thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Harville Hendricks, Dr. Helen LaKelly, and Dr. Gary Salyer wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.